This is Radio EcoShock with Alex Smith. In just days, our planet's population will cross a new threshold. The eight billionth member of our human family will be born. This milestone puts into perspective what this climate conference is all about. How will we answer when baby eight billion is old enough to ask, what did you do for our world and for our planet when you had the chance? Excellencies, this UN climate conference is a reminder that the answer is in our hands. And the clock is ticking. We are in the fight of our lives and we are losing. Greenhouse gas emissions keep growing. Global temperatures keep rising. And our planet is fast approaching tipping points that will make climate chaos irreversible. We are on a highway to climate hell with our foot still on the accelerator. The war in Ukraine, other conflicts have caused so much bloodshed and violence and their dramatic impacts all over the world. But we cannot, we cannot accept that uh, our attention is not focused on climate change. We must, of course, work together to support peace efforts and then the tremendous suffering. But climate change is on a different timeline and a different scale. It is a defining issue of our age. It is the central challenge of our century. It is unacceptable, outrageous and self-defeating to put it on the back burner. Indeed, many of today's conflicts are linked with growing climate chaos. And the war in Ukraine has exposed the profound risks of our fossil fuel addiction. And today's crisis cannot be an excuse for backsliding or greenwashing. If anything, there are a reason for greater urgency, stronger action, and effective accountability. That was United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres opening the COP27 climate conference in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt, November 2022. Welcome, welcome. In a few minutes, you will hear remarkable science a new feedback loop of wildfires and self-perpetuating heat has erupted in the last three years, but it's in the Arctic of all places. This has not been reported in the news, but it shows up on satellite images. Don't miss David Gaveau. But first, you may ask, should this program be about the COP27 climate conference in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt? It's going on right now. Young climate leader Greta Thunberg calls the COP27 climate conference a scam. At least 35,000 people used fossil-burning aircraft to attend the 27th Conference of the Parties, or COP27. It was held this year in a Red Sea resort compound in Egypt. Many people flew in private planes with only a few on board. It is a festival of fossil fuel burning to solve the problem of fossil fuel burning. Also in attendance, about 630 known fossil fuel lobbyists. For those keeping score, that is a 25% increase of fossil fuel pushers, 
over the previous COP26 held in Glasgow last year. Profits for big oil, gas, and coal companies are stupendous. It's out in the stars. Individual multinational oil and gas companies are raking in sums larger than the national budgets of many of the countries attending the climate meeting and many who suffer from climate change. Big oil and gas isn't a charm ill shake just to delay any climate-saving actions that could hurt their profits. Of course, that's always going on. The fossil pushers will also be looking for side-room deals to sell more oil and gas and coal to consumer countries. They are panicked by breakdowns of Russian energy and a split in the world energy supply. You hold a conference about global fentanyl addiction, and hundreds of dealers show up selling in the back rooms. Get a hit. That is where we are. Aside from the burst of aviation gas into an overloaded atmosphere, we can presume 35,000 people from all over the world will return home to spread both COVID-19 and the flu as those pandemics continue. No, it is not over. There is some good news. The World Health Organization announced a 90% drop in COVID deaths since February, down from 75,000 a week confirmed COVID deaths last February to around 10,000 deaths a week at the end of November. We know from later statistics on excess mortality, those numbers are far lower than the real picture. Over 2 million new cases of COVID-19 were reported last week, with self-testing at home not reported. Millions of people with no access to tests and governments that don't report, that is a wild underestimate as well. The WHO says the five countries with the most cases were Japan, South Korea, the United States, Germany, and China. Of those countries, Japan and South Korea are reporting rising cases. This COP27 in Egypt will further spread disease and seed new variants of COVID all over the world. That's just the cold facts. Prior to the pandemic, when the COP climate meetings were held in countries with civil rights, we could partly justify this fossil-burning party as a chance for well-meaning people to meet one another and figure out action. As in Copenhagen in 2009 and Glasgow last year, there was hope of getting truth to power. At least climate activists could get media attention, so the rest of us don't feel so lonely with our climate knowledge. That could not and did not happen in Egypt, a military police state that jails bloggers and beats protesters. As Greta Thunberg says, national leaders and billionaires do not need these climate meetings at all. We don't have to wait. The science is in, and so are the extreme weather damage reports. Any humans with a claim to power could begin the emergency actions we need to rescue a livable future for ourselves and for all following generations. After 27 huge meetings, human greenhouse gas emissions just continue to increase each year. We set another record last year. The promises and grand plans are just hot air. The whole conference of the parties is just a stall. How could it be anything else? According to the COP rules, any world plan to save the climate has to have complete consensus of all participating countries, almost 200 of them. Not a majority vote. A single country like the United Arab Emirates, which sent fossil fuel lobbyists, 70 of them, to the COP. Or Saudi Arabia. Or the fractious American Senate. Or China could just say, no, no thanks. Never mind that major world leaders are not attending this one anyway. The head of the world's biggest emitter, China, will not be there. 
big producer Russia will not send Vladimir Putin, and big consumer India, well, Narendra Modi is not coming either. No real global action can be reached without them. We're just kidding ourselves. And how could it be anything else? Let's be real. Paralyzed by fear of freezing in the dark or economic collapse, there is no mass movement calling for an end to fossil fuels. Nobody wants gas stations closed in their cities. Major car makers like Toyota have already announced more production of gasoline and diesel vehicles in the next few years than the atmospheres can possibly handle. Just like the billionaires, most people in developed countries are quietly hoping the fossil party goes on as long as it can. Maybe we will take a last few holiday trips and stock up on goodies before the hard times. Until the culture of media and academia and work decide to risk wrenching change, the base of political support is not there. No matter what their illusions of power, politicians cannot go too far ahead of willingness by their citizens to go along. So Elon Musk, the new owner of an online company, has ordered the remaining thousands of Twitter workers back to their offices. Some businesses are tossing off the energy-saving work solution of being online. We will just go back to the old model, which is killing us by the millions. With this radio show, experts try to peer into the future. We want to see what is coming and what to avoid at all costs. Over 1,000 interviews and a lot of research on my part and my personal opinion is the future is a series of hard falls and difficult rearrangements for the survivors. More beans in the basement is not a long-term solution. The survival food business crashed itself a few years ago. And I can tell you from 10 years of personal experience Back to the land, well, most of us cannot really support ourselves outside organized society. Maybe some could by going back to settler technology or even medieval times, but not many. That is a problem. Suppose your social system goes into a series of crashes. Stocks go way up and then way down. A random billionaire kills off a global communication system. Things don't show up on the supermarket shelves. You can't find a doctor, and the hospitals have a two-day wait time, even for emergencies. That's going on right now in the Canadian province of Ontario. A hard shift in civilization is not the big day it crashes event that survivalists imagine. It is a series of shocks, each with their own demands for change, whether you like it or not, and each providing a kind of a shock that, well, it weakens us and it confuses us. We are missing a layer of preparation. At the top, we hope national leaders and big business will come up with something to save us, even at COP27. As individuals, we can make backstops like stored food and community building. I do those. There seems to be nothing in between the top and the bottom. This is the layer where civil society used to be before the ongoing pandemic and before the strategy of stoking hate and anger and division as tools of power and control. Consider radio. When radio dominated media in the 1930s and 40s, the family had one receiver set. People gathered in the living room to listen together. It was the same when television came out in the 1950s, one in the living room. Today, most people are separated into private experiences for a large part of their day and evening. Many of us have our own screens and headsets. We think we are linking up 
with thousands of people on Instagram or the late Twitter, but look around. We are alone, individuated, due to technology and by design. Volunteer groups and nonprofits can tell you. Local musicians and actors can tell you. Participation and donations are way down. The middle layer of society, community action, is dying, or at least it's in a coma. Why should I risk my health in a climate march when I can change the world with a post online? Big business is ready to provide you with that crippled individuality. Mark Zuckerberg wants to sell you an alternative universe. Just move into your avatar and your virtual space. Everyone can collect hits and followers. Strangely, during a pandemic, we live to go viral. Google quietly collects everything about you and sells your profile to the highest bidder, which could be a state actor that hopes to help you collapse and die. Somewhere deep in the human psyche, we are still predators and sometimes cannibals. 35,000 predators and cannibals fly to a climate meeting in the land of the pyramids. You write the punchline. I know this is all very dark. Schopenhauer would be proud. We can be more than this. Beauty, love, and happiness are not gone. When the hurricane, fire, or flood comes, people come out to help. Sometimes we risk our lives to save others. Countless thousands go daily to keep the food bank running, to teach kids, to help. That better spirit is in us too, and may yet come. This is Radio Ecoshock. Let's dig into the science with our first guest. Check out the Radio Ecoshock website. We're at ecoshock.org. While COVID and war captured world attention, Arctic wildfires are accelerating. 44% of Arctic burns in the last 40 years came in the last three years. The pace is accelerating, and scientists warn the Arctic is approaching a new tipping point that could push more warming on the whole world. The paper is Unprecedented Fire Activity Above the Arctic Circle Linked to Rising Temperatures. A major author is forest mapping expert Dr. David Gavot. He has published over 60 papers and appears regularly in the media and advises NGOs and has been part of the UN process at times. From France, David Gavot, welcome to Radio Ecoshock. Oh, hello, Alex. Thank you for having me. First of all, most people picture the Arctic as a treeless waste of ice and snow. Where are the forests then? You've got taiga forests growing quite far north. Uh, then the tree line starts to, uh, the further north you go, um, the tree line starts to uh, shorten and eventually disappears. And then we're entering a, a tundra biome. I work focused on um, an area of, the, of Siberia above the Arctic Circle. So we call that the Siberian Arctic, an area about five and a half times larger than the size of France. So perhaps the size of Western Europe, a little bit more. I would say that most of this area is tundra and less taiga forests, although there is some, but really what we're looking at here is um, fires on uh, tundra grasslands, although a little bit also in um, in forested regions um, further south. Very little credible news and analysis gets out of Russian Siberia. How did your team estimate the increase in fires? Right, so we were um, alarmed by the results when we when we found them. We are satellite people, and we've been monitoring forests 
fires, essentially burned areas, you know, the area of land that burns um, by fire. We've used satellites in various regions of the world, primarily working on Indonesia. And we sort of applied our techniques. We modified them to um, uh, work out, to measure, the, uh, to estimate the area of land that burned in the Siberian Arctic every year since 1982. For this, we used various satellite sensors, some of which were already in space in 1980. So we were able to recreate a time series of annual burned areas since 1982 to 2020 using um, satellites such as Landsat, Sentinel-2, uh, AVHR, and some burned area products derived by NASA using Aqua and Terra satellites. We put all these data sets together. Some images we analyzed ourselves, the Landsat data and the Sentinel data, and we were able to show through this that we see more uh, of the Arctic, of the Siberian Arctic burning today than ever before. I mean, our window is only looking at 40 years, but um, in the last three years, like nearly half of what actually burned in the last 40 years burned in the last three years. That was a shocking result for us because we fear that a tipping point has been reached. I say this because we show that the rapid warming of the Arctic has led to um, more extreme wildfire seasons. We find that a threshold, a temperature threshold has been crossed beyond which a small increase in temperature will lead to an exponential increase in the area burned in, in that region. And in 2019 and 2020, uh, average summer temperatures in the Siberian Arctic have been above 10 degrees Celsius. They were, in fact, I think in 2020, it was nearly 13 degrees Celsius, 12.8 uh, or something, air temperature, summer, June, July, August. And that represented, it was three degrees warmer than a typical summer in 1980. Uh, the average air temperature in summer, so from June to August, was greater than 10 degrees only four times in the period under uh, our study, which starts in 1982, only four times in 2001. And then the last three years of the study period, 2018, 2019, and 2020. And these four years, including 2001, turned out to be the years with the most fires too. So really the Arctic heats up, we, we know some studies have already shown that the Arctic heats up faster than the rest of the planet. But what we are actually showing is that this amplification is causing abnormal fire activity uh, in the region. And that's, um, that's worrisome because this is an area which normally doesn't burn. I wouldn't say that fires are not uncommon because you do see fire activity every summer, but not on the scales that we've measured. We've measured that 3 million hectares of lands burned in 2020. This is our most accurate measurement using uh, Sentinel-2 satellite imagery from the European Space Agency, a 20 meter spatial resolution. This is as good as it gets to measure burned area over um, large spatial scales. I'm talking of an area of 286 million hectares, size of Western Europe, a little bit more. 3 million hectares burned in that single year. For decades, forest experts discounted the role of wildfires as a source of additional carbon and, and, and climate change. They said shrubs and trees will return to recapture any carbon they lost. But is it now burning at a rate faster than it can be recaptured by growth? 
Well, this is an interesting question, and I actually don't have the answer. The the, the carbon that is obviously uh, the more fire, the more burning, the more carbon and CO2 and methane are released into the atmosphere. I don't know where it ends. I uh, There was an interesting study that did look at the um, where did the carbon that burned in Australia during the 2019 and 2020. There were massive fires there. And some of that was actually recaptured by uh, blooming ph- phytoplankton somewhere in um, in the in the ocean. I forgot where it was. I think the paper had actually located that region. So th- there are mechanisms by which this carbon is is going to be sequestered again by by nature. So you know potentially by blooming algae or phytoplankton in the ocean. But um, the reason why we're, we think that this result is, is a worrying result is because the area in this region of the world is covered in, um, you know, this tundra is essentially a, it's a swamp. It's, it's a swamp with rich, the soil is rich in carbon. Uh, we're talking of permafrost, we're talking of peatlands, Arctic peatlands. And this frozen permafrost is actually a sink of carbon. It, it's been, you know, sometimes they can be thousands of years old. They've accumulated carbon over over the time because because the region is cold and uh, they can they can trap and sequester that carbon. But because of the uh, rising temperature, then the Arctic is warming. I think more than four times faster than than the planet as a whole. This warming is impacting this permafrost, which is thawing and drying. And through this, fires do start to occur on, on, on those soils and they release carbon. And obviously, the more burning will happen, the more carbon will be emitted because it's, uh, it, there's a lot of carbon stored in that soil. And that's the worry because what we show might be just the beginning of more and more carbon released into the atmosphere. And then at this point, the question is, you know, will the planetary system be able to capture, re-sequester all this carbon that I don't know? And perhaps I don't think so. Uh, but I think that's the worry uh, across the world. Those carbon sinks, those peatlands have been uh, degraded by human activity. Our work in Indonesia have showed this. In Indonesia, it's a little bit different because the, the the carbon soils are also swamps, but they're covered in, in lush tropical forests. And, um, you know, there's been lots of deforestation and the, the, the swamps have been drained through uh, drainage canals. And uh, as a result, there has been an increase in fire activity on those degraded peatlands, deforested peatlands. You know, essentially carbon sinks, lush tropical forests have been turned into carbon soils, degraded um, tropical peatlands, degraded and drained. So the story is different, but slightly similar. We are also in the presence of peatlands. There aren't many trees. We're in the tundra, although there might be places where there's forest. But the point is that those peatlands, if they become sources sources of carbon, this is not good news for our planet. Because historically, naturally, nature makes them be carbon sinks. And we go out there and then, you know, we create these uh, disturbances and, um, and then they become net emitters of carbon. So that's not good news. Yes, peat is one of my greater fears, actually. In 1997 and 98, Indonesia became the world's third biggest greenhouse gas emitter just because of peat fires. And you published a study in 2013 on Sumatran peat fires. 
Have you published uh, maps and papers and, and all that sort of thing about how much peat there is in the Arctic? Do we know sort of the total threat that's waiting up there? Well, it's a good question again. And for our work, we show that as well as having more burning each year in the Siberian Arctic, we do see also that more carbon-rich peat soils are burning. Uh, we found this map that was published in a paper in PNAS where they were presenting a, a map with uh, measurements of the, the carbon content of the peat. As far as I can tell, I, I think the largest peatlands in Siberia are not in the area that's currently, you know, that's been burning, that we've seen uh, uh, burning. I mean, well, there is some, but the, the largest share of it is more in Western Siberia, a bit at lower latitudes. And as far as I can, we, we didn't actually look at that region specifically. Essentially, there's a lot of peatlands in Siberia, and you don't want to, you know, we don't want to disturb it. That's as simple as that. Is your study limited to eastern Siberia in this paper, or would it apply to other locations like the boreal forests of Scandinavia and Canada? Right. So we chose the region of the Siberian Arctic for a reason. We started off looking at the entire Arctic region, so Greenland, northern Canada, um, Alaska, and northern Europe, uh, Sweden, Norway, Finland, and, and Russia. What we found was that uh, the region of the Arctic that historically burns the most is this region in Siberia that we focused on. But I have seen some maps in a, some recently published papers that tend to show that this is also the region of the Arctic that warms the fastest. But it doesn't mean that as, you know, as we go on into the future, that more of the Arctic will, will burn and other regions will be impacted. I mean, I do know that there are already fires in Alaska. Fire, again, was, I think it was also published in PNAS not long ago and they made the predictions that temperature increase would um, double the um, area of burning in um, in Alaska compared to the sort of the historical average. Well, we what we actually show we can actually confirm this prediction, but we actually we showed it for the Siberian Arctic, and we showed that we were, you know it's already doubled because the paper had predicted that it would double by two hundred by two thousand and fifty in Alaska, and we show that it's already happened in um, in the Siberian Arctic. So it's all going in the, along the same direction. Um, but the, initially, the, we've looked at the entire Arctic, and then we said, okay, we'll, we'll focus on this region because this is the one that's been burning the most. And um, we think it's because there's a sort of, it, it's warming faster than the than the rest of the Arctic. And I, I don't quite know why. It's probably due to sort of, you know, atmospheric circulations and so on. Um, but I think that's the case. Well, as you pointed out, a, a paper by Mika Ranton and, and colleagues revealed the Arctic is warming four times faster than the rest of the world, and that just came out this summer. It's it's fairly new news. But we also know that wildfires need a source of ignition. Heat is not enough, and, and there are not as many humans in the Arctic, although Russia has more Arctic settlements than any other country. What is lighting up the northern forests? What starts these fires? Right. So it's a bunch of things. But what we show in the paper that they're all linked to temperature. Uh, 
So at the end of the day, it's it's warming, you know, the, the ultimate cause. When the surface of the land warms, when the air uh, above it warms, we tend to see more water vapor coming off the water surface, coming off the land surface or the uh, surface of the vegetation. Because the, the water molecules on the surface of the land and the vegetation, they become more excited. They've got more energy, more kinetic energy. So there are more chances for them to be able to break this bond that keeps them um, uh, attached to the liquid and, and go out in the air. But also the air temperature above it, because it's warmer, it's expanding. So it is a, it, it, it's able to, to hold more water vapor in, in the air. So this process by which water vapor flows from the surface of the land and vegetation away into the sort of the atmosphere above it is this process of uh, vapor pressure. And as the air warms and the surface temperature warm, we do see that, uh, you know, more water vapor is, is sort of being sucked out of the land surface into the atmosphere. And we are talking of a, a vapor pressure deficit. So what happens is that the land surface is actually getting drier. But then this water vapor ultimately goes up in the air and it's warmer. So it'll eventually end up, but that's also depending on circulations. And, and there's this paper that was also published around the same time as ours, talking about polar jets and so on. But so this moist air, this water vapor in the air, eventually will start to condensate and to form thunderstorms and there'll be lightning and what we're essentially showing is that this rising temperature is also generating more thunderstorms and more lightning strikes and therefore more uh, sources of ignition because you're right through this region that we've looked at is, is really sparsely populated it's one of the lowest human population densities in the world so it's not the the ignitions do not come from people although field surveys would also be needed to sort of verify this sort of a, this claim but um all signs tend to point to the fact that uh, we do see more convection convective energy in the air uh, particularly like around like June, end of June and, and, and July. And that's causing more emissions and therefore more fires. You're listening to EcoShock Radio for the world. I'm Alex Smith. Get it all at our website, ecoshock.org. This is Radio EcoShock with your host, Alex Smith. Our guest is Dr. David Gavo, expert forest analyst with harsh news from the Arctic. Earth crossed a tipping threshold in the far north. Well, while I have you here, I know you have a lot of expertise on Indonesian forests and the loss of them. I understand Indonesian pulp and paper giant April has announced they will double production, but they say the additional fiber will come from their concessions and suppliers with no loss of intact rainforest. Can your system of mapping and satellites pick up whether that is true or not? We, we're maintaining, we're developing and we're maintaining a system, a monitoring system that detects, that monitors deforestation on an annual basis, going back 20 years, but also in real time on a weekly basis. 
And we're looking at this deforestation in a number of concessions, whether they are oil palm or pop and paper. April is one of the concession, one of the companies that we monitor, uh, um, among others. It is fair to say that uh, deforestation in these concessions have actually has decreased quite dramatically in the last few years, just like it did overall in Indonesia. So in that sense, there's been much, much less deforestation. But when you look at the 20-year period, when you look at the, the the amount of damage that April and its sort of, uh, you know, and the other, uh, and APP, the, the two sort of largest players in, in the pulp and paper industry in Indonesia, they've caused uh, a dramatic amount of deforestation and particularly on peatlands because we talked about peatlands earlier, but peatlands were pretty much left untouched until the early 1990s because Naturally, peatlands are swamps. You don't, you know, it's not really conducive for agriculture. The soils are also very acidic. So to turn uh, a peatland area into an agricultural farm uh, is costly. You need to cut the forest. Um, okay, you can sell wood. That's good. But then you need to excavate, do uh, drainage canals, quite a few of them. So you need to have heavy machinery with you. And then at the end of the day, the soils that you get, you know, well, they will still, you know, there will still be some flooding and then at some point, but also the soils acidic. So they're not great. And up until the 1990s, they were left on their own. But then ABB in April, precisely in the 1990s, pioneered the conversion of um, uh, peace swamp forests to, um, well, mainly acacia and uh, eucalyptus monoculture plantations through, um, you know, a mechanized clearing and so on. And this pioneering, they they did this because they didn't want to have problems with communities around them because nobody used to go in, on those peatlands. But then uh, the, the clearing opened roads and um, navigation waterways. And so as the years progressed, more and more people also obviously looking for land and and more and more people were able to afford uh, uh, to, you know, to rent uh, heavy excav- excavators and so on through um, uh, farmers associations and so on. So there's been a, a, a sort of, they've opened the floodgates to um, uh, uh, peatland conversion in uh, in Indonesia and uh, and the subsequent uh, problems that were faced with fires, and but also subsidence, flooding and, and so on. But it's fair to say that if they if they're telling you, okay, well, you know, we've done a lot of progress. We don't we no longer have deforestation. We no longer clear the forests that are in in our concessions. Uh, there's some truth in there. They've also uh, April um, has uh, also acquired a number of restoration concessions. It's a concession, but it's not to clear the forest; it's to restore it, or at least to maintain it, to protect it. So they have that. They're very proud about that. But um, I think they should do more because we're talking hundreds of thousands of hectares that they've cleared to grow acacia and eucalyptus. And there's talks of more um, processing facilities and expansion and so on. I think they will have to uh, be very careful because they've made these no zero deforestation pledges. And a lot of eyes are on, on those activities. There's been a bit of progress, but it's nowhere near enough compared to the damage that was done. Well, getting back to the Arctic, what is the tipping point you and your colleagues warn about in the paper? Talk to us about the 10 degrees. Right. Well, this is the um, observation that we made when we looked at the relationship between our burned area estimates annually since 1982 to 2020. And when we compare those burned area estimates with air temperature, uh, with uh, summer air temperature, uh, sort of the average temperature 
uh, for June, July and August, but also against surface temperature and vapor pressure deficit and climatic water deficit and, and so on. When I go back to the air temperature, we did indeed find that the correlation was, uh, there was a, a, a near exponential relationship between air temperature, but also surface temperature, and the, the amount of, burn, of, of burning every year. So because it's near exponential, there's this, at one point, there's a, a sort of a threshold above which a small increase in temperature will, in, will generate a, a very large increase in burned area. And for air temperature, this threshold is 10 degrees. For surface temperature, this threshold is 17 degrees. That's what we observed. We observed that when uh, a summer in the Siberian Arctic, on average, is uh, above 10 degrees Celsius, we do see more fires. We start to see you know, like an acceleration of fire activity. Only four times in four years that we've looked at uh, did the summers surpass 20, 10 degrees and um, only four times uh, in 2001. But then the last three years, 2018, 2019, and 2020, you see what we're seeing is that, and what we're predicting we're, is that in the future, more and more summers will be warmer than 10 degrees and they will see more and more fires as a result. Now, I don't have the full understanding of what this 10 degrees mean biologically, you know, or biophysically at least, but, what I could say is that temperature is, is, is driving a lot of different fire factors like uh, lengthening of the summer season, earlier snowmelt, longer uh, growing season. So what we also evidenced in the paper was that there was a, a greening of, you know, of the Arctic in the, in the last 40 years. More vegetation also means more fuel more that can potentially burn. Um, we also show that climatic water deficit was going up. In, in other words, plants are receiving less water through the roots than they need to be able to thrive because they have to give out too much through evapotranspiration um, through this sort of vapor pressure deficit. And so that creates a, create a climatic water deficit. Um, essentially, plants are stressed because they don't have enough water. Your team uncovered a positive feedback loop where warming drives more fires that will bring more warming. I know it's a little early to say, but do you think additional greenhouse gases from Arctic wildfires could be big enough to speed up global warming the world over? I, I think the risk is real for in the future because of so much peatlands that could, you know, uh, essentially thaw and, 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 and dry and, and, and burn. But when we look at the numbers currently, we I think we were showing that, was it like between uh, 150 and 200? I don't have the numbers on top of my head, but like around 200 million tons of CO2 equivalent were emitted into the atmosphere in 2020. That's a lot. It's about the emissions from a country like Spain in a year, but it's less than the estimates for um, emissions from peatland fires in Indonesia. In 2015, we measured, I was on a team of scientists who, uh, who measured, um, quantified the um, carbon emissions from the 2015 fires. And um, the, the lead author, author was Huygen um, from a university in, in the Netherlands. And we found that in 2015, it was not 200 million tons of CO2 equivalent, but it was 1.2 billion tons of CO2 equivalent that was emitted. 
like five times more. That's pretty worrying. So, David, as we wrap up here, could you tell us about the role of your website, thetreemap.com, that you founded? Uh, well, we had another website. It's called uh, Nusantara Atlas. It's uh, a website that specializes in the monitoring of uh, deforestation in real time, but also fires, specifically in equatorial Asia. So we're looking at Indonesia, we're looking at Malaysia, and soon uh, PNG, uh, Papua New Guinea. It's called Nusantara Atlas. So it's got maps. It's uh, a bunch of interactive maps. It's essentially bringing in satellite imagery, uh, processed de data on deforestation, but also a rich cadastral information into one space. And people are able to verify if there's deforestation in, in the concession or, and so on. We also have a blog section where we regularly post articles, stories, when we find um, something going on that uh, we think people should know about. Like uh, it could be positive news. Hey, we see that deforestation is declining in Indonesia. This is good news. But it could be negative news where we say, oh, well, yes, but uh, locally, we do see um, increasing deforestation in the national park, for example. And so we try to um, keep people informed. This website is primarily for Indonesian NGOs who work in the field of forest conservation in Indonesia to sort of help anybody uh, understand what happens on the ground, you know, to make sure that it's fair, transparent and uh, democratic. As the site is called Nusantara Atlas. We're hoping to be able to expand it into the future. In fact, we're now thinking of at least expand this to the, the sort of the Arctic region where we could just monitor deforestation, you know, fires and deforestation, but primarily fires in, in near real time. But that's the sort of the main website. The tree map website is, I must say, I need to sort of <laughs> rethink it because it's that was built two years ago in a rush after I came back from Indonesia. I was um, I was actually deported from Indonesia in uh, 2020 before the pandemic in January for um, reporting burned area estimates in 2019 in Indonesia. They were double the official estimate. So I came back to my home country in France and I set up the company, the tree map in a bit of a rush. I set up the website and I haven't done anything uh, since. Right. Well, I will get that new website from you and I will post it in my blog at ecoshock.org so listeners can find that. And we're all looking forward to the day when any of us can look at deforestation anywhere in the world and, and make sense of it so we can be a witness to what is happening here. We have been speaking with Dr. David Gaveau. He is co-author of the new paper, Unprecedented Fire Activity Above the Arctic Circle, Linked to Rising Temperatures. It's published in the journal Science on November 3rd. David, thank you for taking the time to speak with our listeners. Well, thank you very much, Alex. It was, it was a pleasure to be there and to be able to sort of explain a little bit what we did and um, Hopefully, um, some things are going to change, you know, with the global climate talks uh, now taking place at COP27. I mean, there's a sense of urgency. We're seeing it all around us. Hot summers in, in, in Europe and so on. Now this thing in the Arctic. And so um, let's hope that some good decisions are going to be made at COP27 this week. I'm Alex Smith for Radio EcoShock. This is a climate emergency. Find out more on the blog. EcoShock.org. No sign up, just the latest info, free for all. EcoShock.org. 
This is former Vice President Al Gore addressing the COP27 climate conference in its opening days. Your Royal Highnesses, Your Majesties, uh, Heads of State, Excellencies, Ladies and Gentlemen, Distinguished Guests, it is a, a great honor to be able to play a part in this opening ceremony of the 27th Conference of the Parties. Mr. President, thank you. Mr. Secretary General, thank you for your leadership of the entire world. We are all here today because we continue to use the thin blue shell of atmosphere surrounding our planet as an open sewer. Today, as every day, we are spewing 162 million tons of man-made heat-trapping global warming pollution into the sky. It adds up and accumulates and lingers there. On average, each molecule lingers 100 years, and the accumulated amount now traps as much extra heat as would be released by 600,000 Hiroshima-class atomic bombs exploding every day on our planet. That's why we're seeing these disasters. And the pattern is very clear. It's getting steadily worse. We have a credibility problem, all of us. We're talking, and we're starting to act, but we're not doing enough. It is a choice to continue this pattern of destructive behavior. We have other choices. In my faith tradition, I learned a teaching that is common to all three of the Abrahamic religions, that God has set before humanity a choice between blessings and curses, between life and death. We face that choice today. We can continue the culture of death that surrounds our addiction to fossil fuels by digging up dead life forms from eons ago and burning them recklessly in ways that create more death, including 8.7 million people every year that die from the air pollution principally caused by the burning of fossil fuels. The curses that we are continuing to choose are ever more apparent. We saw them on that amazingly powerful film, one-third of Pakistan underwater, 1,700 people killed. A heat wave in China that lasted 70 days with the heat above 40 degrees, 104 Fahrenheit over a vast area of China. Stronger storms, bigger downpours, rain bombs, worse floods. Another million displaced in Nigeria two weeks ago. Another million in Chad a few days after that. The Nile Delta being salinated just as Hannibal's fields were salted. We are causing the salting of the greatest agricultural area in Egypt, as well as in the Mekong Delta and elsewhere. Droughts are drying up the mighty Mississippi River in my country. The Tigris and the Euphrates in the cradle of civilization. The Po River in Italy, the Loire in, in France, the Rhine in Germany, all over the world. The greatest reservoirs in North America, Lake Mead and Lake Powell, are reaching what is called Deadpool status. Starvation and famine in the Horn of Africa, devastation in Madagascar. 
And the areas of our world that are presently considered by doctors uninhabitable because of the combination of heat and humidity are relatively small today, but they are due to expand to the point where experts are predicting as many as one billion climate migrants crossing international borders in the balance of this century. Think of the millions that are crossing borders now and the xenophobia and authoritarian populism that is caused by a large surge of refugees. And then imagine, if you will, what a billion climate refugees would do. It would end the possibilities of self-governance. We have to act. We know that tragically, across the nations of Africa, these impacts are even worse. And in the Pacific Islands and elsewhere. And the poor suffer the most. The late Archbishop Desmond Tutu said climate change is the apartheid of our times. We don't have to choose curses. We can choose blessings, including the blessings of renewable energy. We are now in the early stages of a sustainability revolution that has the magnitude of the industrial revolution and the speed of the digital revolution. If we invest in it and stop subsidizing the culture of death, we can save ourselves. Dollar for dollar, each dollar spent in renewable energy creates three times as many jobs as dollars spent in fossil energy. And this sustainability revolution is massively deflationary at just the time when the world is fine to, trying to find new ways to battle inflation. The International Energy Agency has called solar energy the cheapest energy in the entire history of the world. And Africa can be the renewable energy superpower. Africa has 40% of the entire world's global potential for renewables. The potential for solar and wind in Africa is 400 times larger than their total fossil fuel reserves. And these are real possibilities. This is not pie in the sky. If you look at all of the new electricity generation installed worldwide last year, 90% of it was renewable because it is cheaper almost everywhere. And in two years, it will be cheaper in 100% of the world. But it is not enough to simply increase our support for clean energy if we are simultaneously backtracking on our commitments against developing and financing fossil fuels. The world's leading scientists and energy experts have told us that any new fossil fuel development is incompatible with 1.5 degrees as the limit to the temperature increase. Mr. Secretary General, you said we are on a highway to climate hell. We need to take our foot off the gas. We need to obey the first law of holes. When you're in one, stop digging. We have to stop making this crisis worse. We must see the so-called dash for gas for what it really is. A dash down a bridge to nowhere leaving the countries of the world facing climate chaos and billions in stranded assets, especially here in Africa. At a time of turbulence in the global 
energy markets, the wealthy nations of the world should not confuse the short term with the long term and should not be fooled by the absolute need to backfill the shortage of fossil energy caused by the uh, cruel and uh, evil war launched by Russia in Ukraine as an excuse for locking in long-term commitments to even more dependence and addiction on fossil fuels. We have to move beyond the era of fossil fuel colonialism. And that's what it is. The dash for gas in Africa is a dash for gas to be sent to wealthy countries. We have to remove the barriers to the trillions needed for climate finance. And the scale of what is needed can only be provided by the private sector. I support governments paying money for loss and damage and adaptation. But let's be very clear that that's a matter of billions or tens of billions. We need four and a half trillion dollars per year to make this transition. And that can only come by unlocking private access to private capital. In the United States and in Canada, if you look at all of the financing of renewable energy, 96% of it comes from the private market. If you look at Africa, much lower amounts overall, but what percentage of it comes from private markets? Not 96%, 14%, 86% comes from governments. Why is that? Because, for example, if you want to build a solar field in Nigeria, you ha even though it's profitable, you have to pay interest rates that are seven times higher than the interest rates paid by OECD countries. That is unjust. It is insane. That is what the World Bank and the multilateral development banks are supposed to address. We need to reconvene Bretton Woods and completely revamp and reform the World Bank system and make access to private capital available for developing countries. This is a moment for a global epiphany. It is not time for, for moral cowardice and reckless indifference to the future of humanity. If you want an example of reckless indifference, just recall the banker who said earlier this year in discussing the impacts of the climate crisis, who cares? When he was fired, it reminded me of the famous writer who said that in the highest reaches of business and politics, a gaffe is often when someone actually, uh, accidentally tells the truth. The truth is, that all of us have limitations and weaknesses and vulnerabilities, but as human beings, we also have the God-given ability to rise above those limitations. The greatest leader of my country, Abraham Lincoln, once said, the occasion is piled high with difficulty, and we must rise with the occasion. As our case is new, we must think anew and act anew. We must disenthrall ourselves and then we shall save our country, and that is the way we can save our world. More is needed, but we have the basis for hope. Just days ago, the people of Brazil chose to stop the destruction of the Amazon. Earlier this year, the people of Australia chose to start leading the renewable energy revolution. Earlier this year, the people of my country chose leaders who enacted at long last the biggest and most ambitious climate legislation in the history of the world. The world has passed and enacted the Kigali Amendment. We have the basis 
basis for hope. If we actually do reach true net zero, the scientists tell us temperatures will stop going up with a lag time of as little as three to five years. And if we stay at true net zero, half of all of the man-made CO2 will fall out of the atmosphere in as little as 25 to 30 years. But we have to choose blessings instead of curses. We have to choose life over death. If we are truly to make this COP the one that drives implementation of the pledges made in Glasgow, we must equip ourselves with every tool and resource to facilitate our path to true net zero and work together to drive impact and increase accountability. I want to applaud the Secretary General for making transparency around these net zero goals a priority. And I'm proud that two days from now, Climate Trace, a nonprofit coalition of artificial intelligence experts and data scientists and researchers and NGOs, will announce the first inventory of site-specific facility sources of greenhouse gas pollution, the most detailed inventory ever assembled that can be used to identify exactly where all this pollution is coming from. There is a path that we can make from here to a future with hope. As a final point, I started by saying that we have a credibility problem, but we also have the ability to address it. And if anyone doubts that we can summon the political will to do what is necessary and to save our future, always remember that political will is itself a renewable resource. Thank you. That was Vice President Al Gore speaking at the United Nations COP27 Climate Conference in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt. Stay tuned for more of The Rotten Truth and Tiny Hope next week on Radio EcoShock. I'm Alex Smith. Thank you for listening and caring about our world. <laughs>